I remember I was on a flight to Africa and I was like, what if I hate it? You know, like my whole life I've decided I wanted to be this thing. Like I've never actually done anything related to being this thing. And what if it's something that I really don't enjoy? And how do I reshape what I perceive as my identity to try to do something else? My name is Alex McInturf. I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow um, at Oregon State University's Big Fish Lab. So uh, I don't really know. I feel like I wear many hats. So figuring out one title to call me is, is hard. I would say I'm a science communicator. I am a marine ecologist. I'm also an animal behaviorist. So it depends on kind of what the context is and the questions I'm asking. But I feel like I kind of switch around in terms of what I'm interested in. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Below the Tide. My name is Liz, and I am your host. Below the Tide is a podcast basically for everyone who grew up wanting to be a marine biologist, whether you are one now, whether you've always dreamt of studying whales or plankton, and you just want an inside view into what the marine science world really is all about. So every week I sit down with a marine scientist and we break down their research in easy to understand ways and we also talk about their really cool stories, so things from field work to their discoveries and so on. With every episode, I post resources on my Instagram page and on my Twitter page. Both handles are at below the tide pod, and there you can find things like definitions, pictures from these scientists, as well as maps, that kind of thing. You should also follow the pages. I post updates throughout the week. You'll see when new episodes go up, links and all of that. This week, we're sitting down again with Alex McInturf. This is episode 22. So episode 21 was an intro to Alex and I would definitely recommend listening to that one before you jump into this one. Alex studies basking sharks. So this episode, we're continuing on with that. We're gonna deep dive into what her field work looks like and so on. So go back to episode 21 and get your intro to basking sharks beforehand. I hope that you grab a coffee, grab a seat, go sit out on your porch, go walk your dog, start your commute to work, whatever you need and enjoy. What does your field work look like? Or what did it look like when you were studying basking sharks? I'm fortunate that my field work is still ongoing with them. <laughs> but nice. yes, so field work with basking sharks, and this is a straight up insight into the whole hard scientific process. It's really challenging because this is an endangered species. They were classified as endangered in 2019. And while they do show up in these hot spots at certain times of year, they also vary a lot in when that might be and how many show up. And again, that's kind of the work I'm trying to do is figure out what changes from year to year that causes the numbers of them to show up to change or you know, causes them to show up later than I would have expected in, in the year. Those are all sorts of projects I'm working on. But I went to Ireland three times during my PhD and saw basking sharks once. I was over there for about two months at a time. And that is unfortunately pretty common. So doing basking shark work is not easy. And it's certainly something that would be really challenging to build a whole research program on. So I, I think a lot of people study basking sharks in addition to other species, mm -hmm. just because basking sharks can be really elusive. Now, when I saw them in Ireland, they were breaching 
which is very cool. Basking sharks do this amazing behavior where they, like whales, will fling themselves out of the water. And why they do this is still unclear. It, my hypothesis is that it's a social dominance display to other basking sharks. It's like a way of communication. But you know, unlike great white sharks, they don't need to ambush prey. They're feeding on plankton. Yeah. And again, presumably it's a huge energetic expense to throw yourself out of the water. Uh, so we're still trying to figure out why they do that. But it was a really, really cool moment where you're on the water and you just see these big animals uh, kind of gracelessly flopping uh, right next to your boat. So that was very cool. But most of the time, the work essentially consists of trying to predict when the sharks will be in Ireland, which is task number one. And you really have to you have to have people over there on the ground, like an Irish basking shark group who will tell you when the sightings are starting to trickle in. Then you try to target your your timing for field work. So again, this all kind of comes with experience, and I am just now learning how to how to target that time appropriately. Like when are they going to show up? Because I don't live there, so it's it's especially hard when you have to uproot your whole life and go over there for a month or two, and you don't know if they're going to be there. And that's just working with them. That's just very that's just how the field work goes. So again, in, during my PhD, I did that for two years in a row and saw none. And then I did that for one other year and saw them once, but couldn't get tags on because how do you tag a breaching shark? I don't know. Uh, but then most recently we went in, in Ireland. Um, sorry. Sorry. My landlady is here and I told her I was in a meeting. So, okay, where were we? Where should I start from? Um, I most recently you were in Ireland. Okay, thank you. Michael, enough. Stop. Um, most recently I was in Ireland and we happened to time it perfectly. So fourth time was the charm in this case. And we landed and had essentially an amazing weather window right off the bat. So for basking shark work, you really have to have ideal weather conditions. It's probably best for us because being on uh, the North Atlantic during during storms or during high winds is really hard. <laughs> so we actually will really only go out if the wind is quite low and the swell is also pretty low. So it's really flat water so you can best see them to go get tags on them. And they also tend to be at the surface when that's happening, probably because the plankton layer has settled a little bit. And so it's more dense and they're able to track it more easily, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So we showed up in Ireland and we basically had to get all of our tags ready to go. We rent an Airbnb for a month. And what I have learned during my time over there is you have to be really mobile because basking sharks will show up during the in the south of the country at the beginning and might move north during the time that you're there. So you have to have a car. And in this case, I learned how to drive a stick shift on the wrong side of the road. That was a fun little lesson from this most recent field trip, which is really fun, hard. <laughs> uh and so you have to be able to kind of move with the basking sharks it's maximum flexibility when you're over there and on good weather days you are out on the water all day you are trying there's not really a tide or a certain time of day where you might see them so you are going out on the boat at seven or eight and you're not coming back till seven or eight in the summer because the light um kind of remains there until even like 10 or 11 o'clock at night 
And then you rinse and repeat the next day if the weather is good. So you are trying to get as many tags out as possible while you have a good weather window, which in Ireland does not happen all the time. And while you're out there, essentially what we'll be doing is depending on the vessel we're working on, we'll often charter a boat from a local um, like wildlife tourism company or a fisherman. And those boats can be something that's like a rigged hauled inflatable boat. So mm -hmm. those are just the ones that look like big rafts in the yeah. water and they're very, they're very close to the water. So that's good for tagging, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, or we'll be working off of a bigger vessel and just trying to tag from the bow of the boat. Um, again, very analogous to harpooning, but it's not as, not as bad for the shark. And we'll be out there and if the sharks are feeding at the surface, uh, it's actually really not hard to approach them. We try to approach them at an angle from behind so that we don't spook them by coming at them straight on. And we get the tags prepped, we stick them to the end of the pole. And then as we approach, we try to work with pretty experienced skippers. So they're very good at the approach. Um, we'll just dart them as we go by them, essentially. And sometimes depending on the tags that we put on, some tags can stay on for a really long time and we don't need to get them back to recover the data. But some tags like we'll put camera tags on the fins. We do have to get those back because those can't be transmitted via satellite, that footage, or uh, can't be transmitted to a receiver underwater. So if we have something like that on them, we have to design the tags so that it releases after a certain period of time. So say like six hours, um, the release will let go of the tag. It will pop to the surface because it will be attached to a float. And then it will send out a location to satellite overhead and we have to go find it, which is, I think even more challenging than putting it on the animal. So half of our days on the boat are tagging the sharks and the other half or more than half are spent going to track down the tags that have popped off. Um, but yeah, but it, it works. And that's kind of how a lot of shark scientists do their work. Unfortunately for us, basking sharks also can travel really far. So we have to make sure that we time those releases to pop off within a time we don't think they're gonna bolt across the Atlantic. Um, so it's a lot of trial and error with these guys, and you really have to be working with people who have been doing field work with them for a long time. Yeah. Wow. And so the tags that you use, what are they recording? It depends. I am working on a few different projects with people, some of which I'm leading, some of which I'm just helping out with. What I'm currently interested in are the social lives of basking sharks. And because this is ongoing research, I'm only going to give a little teaser, but essentially you can put tags on these animals that detect the other tags from other tagged individuals. And so you can see, okay, shark A is detecting shark B like pretty consistently over the course of two days. So maybe shark A and shark B are for lack of a better term, shark friends, right? Like maybe they prefer to hang out with certain other individuals. Why that is, and what sort of evolutionary function that might serve, whether it's a potential mating opportunity or whether it's just these two individuals are like closely related or maybe they're just similar sizes. We don't know. We That's sort of what I'm hoping to start to uncover is who hangs out with who and why do they, do they hang out with different groups of other individuals? So that's what I'm currently working on uh, at the moment. That sounds so cool. Once that is all figured out and out there, I'll have to do a recap episode so that I can hear all about the social lives of basking sharks. 
yeah, I would love to talk more about it. I can't wait to see. We have some preliminary data, but I'm hoping to get some funding for a much larger study so we can kind of see what's happening all over the Irish coast. Oh, cool. And what is like, I always like to ask people, what was like a crazy story or a once in a lifetime thing? What are some things that you learned in the field that you were thinking, wow, I didn't think I'd have to figure this out in your field work? There are so many of those moments that I don't even know where to begin. With the basking shark field work in particular, I learned the power of persistence, which I think I had a lot of people after my PhD be like, oh, surely you're done with the basking sharks now. Like there's, you couldn't find any, like why? But I had already invested so much time and energy and effort. I had made connections with folks in Ireland. I was doing a lot of outreach with Irish basking shark group. And I knew that I was on the brink of targeting when I needed to go over there. I had learned so much about them while I was over there, even in their absence, that I knew that I just needed a little bit more time to try to finish out the projects I had started during my PhD, including learning about the social lives of basking sharks. So I think that was something that, you know, a lot of people go into their PhD and they think, I, I have a plan. And I was one of those people. Uh, I learned very quickly that that plan can go quickly south, but it's also okay to work with existing data sets and cobble together a PhD while continuing to pursue projects that get you really excited. And right now, basking sharks are the things that excite me a lot. And of course, the salmon shark work is very cool as well. It's a totally different system that I'm learning. I just know currently a lot less about it than I do about the basking sharks. The basking shark breaching event that I referred to earlier was kind of life-changing. It was just a really amazing moment to see all these huge animals flinging themselves out of the water for seemingly no reason. And especially because I hadn't seen basking sharks yet, that was a pretty big moment. I will say this time, this most recent field season, when I first saw the basking sharks up close and feeding at the surface, I it was kind of emotional for me, I'm not gonna lie. I had looked for them for so long, right? And really, I was supposed to have more field seasons for my PhD. I was probably gonna have four or five of them then, but the pandemic happened and I couldn't even travel to the study sites for two years. And of course, that's when they all showed up, which was really frustrating. <laughs> I was seeing all this amazing footage from people just walking on the beach of like, oh, look at all the basking sharks. And I was stuck at home trying to finish up a PhD on a lot of other types of projects, which were equally as exciting at the time, but it was just something different about seeing the basking sharks in person. That really struck me. And what was cool about that experience is that I was on the boat with a lot of folks who I'd known for a while and who knew how hard I had worked and how much I had persisted to try to see them. Um, and so everybody kind of let me have this like moment of silence as I admired them. But really seeing them in person is, is kind of unreal. Um, and I felt the same way when I first saw great hammerhead sharks. I was working at the Bimini Shark Lab before grad school. And sharks are so weird. You see them on the water and you're like, you look like you're a cartoon or something like CGI. You'd, like They don't look real. And it's one of those things where you're like, I can't, like you could watch them all day because they just come in so many shapes and sizes. Um, and so, so those moments of seeing something where you're like, I've only ever seen you on TV and you are even weirder and cooler in person, those have always really stuck with me. Wow. Yeah. I feel like 
I can relate because the first time I like came across whales really up close because I was I was from a like landlocked type place mm -hmm. and first I cried I was like yep. oh my goodness like seeing an orca breach and I was just yeah in shock yep yeah totally I mean and I'm like you know I think some people would be like oh women in this field shouldn't admit that they're super emotional or whatever I think that's bullshit. Like, I think that it's very cool that we have such like respect and admiration for the things that we study. So yeah, I totally understand that feeling, especially coming from a landlocked place. I also grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, very landlocked. So anytime I'm on the water now feels like a privilege. Oh yeah, totally. How did you get from Ohio to where you are now? Oh, so many, so many ways I feel like Growing up in a landlocked state like that, I initially wanted to be a vet. I always knew I wanted to work with animals. And when I was younger, I hadn't been exposed to the ocean that much. You know, we'd go on trips to Florida during the summer, as a lot of people in the Midwest will do, just to get to the beach, you know, on just summer vacations with my family. And I do remember one year, and I was like 12 or 13, and I was standing on the, the beach and I was looking at the water. And frankly, I was a little bit scared. And I think actually it's like, fear that might drive kind of my interest in all of this is just like approaching or dealing with that fear is to learn more about it. But I remember standing there and saying to my dad, oh, like, can you study the ocean? And my dad even, you know, he's an architect from Ohio. And it's like, yeah, I think that's called marine biology. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds really cool. So I looked more into it. And in particular, I think like Shark Week on Discovery Channel that year coincided with my trip to Florida. So it was like double fear. You know, Whoa. dealing with the ocean that's mysterious and then all the predators in it. And I started to read about it. And of course, I think the more you learn about sharks, the more fascinated you are with them. So I became increasingly interested in that topic. And frankly, from that point on, I was like, I'm going to be a shark scientist. And like, it's still a little bit wild to me that that actually happened. And it's like kind of crazy. A lot of my friends from high school in, in Cincinnati were a little bit floored when I graduated with my PhD because I'm actually the one person doing what, what I said I wanted to do from the time I was quite young. So it's literally living out your childhood dream, which I think is very cool. Of course, there's parts of this whole career that my younger self would have never known about. There's challenges and also things that are more exciting. Um, but all in all, I think that's kind of how it all happened. So I learned about it and then I went to undergrad on the East Coast. Um, and I was a college soccer player. So actually that part was probably driven more by athletics than by science, but I always knew I wanted to, to get into sharks. So as soon as I graduated um, from college, I was like, okay, time to focus on sharks. Like no longer, the purpose of my life is no longer soccer. It's time to move on to the thing that's made me really excited for a long time. So then I did a gap year and I went to Bimini Shark Lab for a few months and also Oceans Research Program in South Africa to get some more hands-on experience with bass or with well not with bass and sharks then with sharks generally and um i remember i was on a flight to africa and i was like what if i hate it <laughs> you know like my whole life i've decided i wanted to be this thing like i've never actually done anything related to being this thing and what if it's something that i really don't enjoy and how do i reshape what i perceive as my identity to try to do something else. Like I really had no backup plan. It's like shark scientists are bust. 
and luckily I loved it and I loved being surrounded by like-minded people and it was like such an amazing experience for me to finally be able to talk about this topic I've been studying primarily in isolation with other people um, and so from there I went to UC Davis to do my PhD in animal behavior working with renowned shark scientist Pete Flimley and then he retired during my PhD so I worked with a few other folks um, and then I got brought on as a postdoc with Taylor uh, in January and Taylor is also a pretty well-known shark scientist so I'm learning even more from him and it's I just feel like I'm learning so much at each stage of my career learning stuff I didn't even know I would still have to learn uh, but it's still been a very cool experience. That's so cool and what did you do in South Africa? In South Africa we were primarily studying the white sharks so oh, cool. yeah that was a white shark focused program we were doing a lot of photo ID to try to see, basically with the fins of many sharks, they have notches or scars. So if you see them at the surface or even slightly underwater, you can actually identify individuals based on the patterns on the back of their dorsal fins, the fins on the top of their bodies. So we do a lot of, a lot of programs will do this and people do this with basking sharks too. Taking pictures and cataloging certain individuals um, is actually a really good way to keep track of who's coming back to the area year after year and when they show up and what they tend to be doing. So I was taking a lot of pictures and I was also tracking uh, the movements of sh uh, the shark prey. So they eat pinnipeds or seals and sea lions. So we were tracking their movements to and from this island and trying to figure out when the sharks would show up and predict when those predation events would happen. Actually, in South Africa, my first white shark was glowing in the dark, which was another amazing kind of life-changing experience because the bay we were working in, I was going out to do a nighttime shift. So we were going out from like 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. And there was bioluminescence. There was like Ugh. essentially these algae in the water that was glowing every time that it was disturbed and when I looked down off the side of the boat while we were out there, you could see the outline of the shark glowing blue because it was disturbing everything around it. That was pretty cool. Oh, I love bioluminescence. I think that's like one of my favorite things about the ocean. Yeah, it's also crazy when it happens. I wasn't expecting it. I was, yeah. we didn't know that it was gonna be bioluminescent. Oh, that's crazy. Um, yeah, that sounds like such a cool time to be able to go to a completely new place and learn about sharks and fully like throw yourself into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really as as someone who, again, had grown up in this very landlocked place. I, I think traveling is always a good way to learn more about yourself and also learn more about how to do research that is collaborative and appropriate for the areas that you're working. I always try to avoid what we call parachute science, where you're going to a place and working and using individual knowledge and local resources and then just bailing without offering any sort of collaborative opportunities or teaching folks what you learned about what's in their own backyard. And scientists for a long time have done that, where they just go and they work in an area and then they leave without kind of giving back to the area that they're working in or collaborating with folks there. And I learned a lot about, you know, how to be more collaborative while traveling and the different ways that different cultures view and value sharks as a resource. Um, so I think that traveling has really been 
really eye-opening and I've been fortunate. I've lived in a lot of different places since I left Ohio. And I think each place has taught me a little bit more about myself and also kind of what I want to do moving forward. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Below the Tide. I really appreciate you being here. Don't forget to hit follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. I'd love to hear from you guys. You can always DM me on social media as well with questions or just reaching out. I love hearing from you. I hope you have a great rest of your week and I'll see you next week.